across the board, there was just a ton of interest in in what we're trying to do. I, you know, I would say for the for the first time in my life, I, I really understand what what real true product market fit is in the sense of when you you put something out there and everyone that you meet just says, you know, how how can I help this exist? Like, I want this to exist. I want this to succeed, and I want to know what I can do to to, to sort of pitch in. Um, that's the general response that we've gotten um, from from both founders and investors. Um, I think that. Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, we've got Tyler Tringas. Tyler, thanks for making time. Thanks for having me. So for people who don't know about Earnest Capital, can you give us the elevator pitch? Yeah, sure. I mean, Earnest Capital is, um, well, we call it funding for bootstrappers. So it's a, a new fund and a new kind of financing mechanism for um, founders who want to build sort of profitable, sustainable businesses. They want a little bit of um, early stage capital, some mentorship and shared resources and they are sort of building a business that is probably not on a sort of um, venture capital traditional sort of startup trajectory much closer to you know your normal sustainable profitable business plan um, but you are looking for uh, some early stage capital we're particularly focused on software businesses and online businesses I love it so um, can you talk a little bit about your background I mean since the days when you and I we're hanging out. You're back at, at Bloomberg New Energy Finance. You've done some fun things. Yeah, sure. No, I've taken a couple of, of big pivots in my in my career trajectory. That's for sure. So, so you and I met when um, when I was you know really focused on uh, finance and in the sort of clean energy space. So you know, it was part of uh, um, a small team at New Energy Finance where we were essentially advising investors and operators in the. Uh, exclusively sort of clean energy space. So in kind of wind, solar, biofuels, that sort of thing. I, I started off covering the, the U.S. wind energy market, basically trying to figure out how many wind projects were going to get built and, and uh, you know, doing a couple of other things in that market, including um, really digging into this sort of arcane concept called tax equity, which was this, you know, fairly sort of uh, Baroque financing structure that uh, the entire wind energy market was run on, and um, you know was was sort of built to solve this this very weird problem in the market where um, you know we decided as a country to finance uh, clean energy with tax credits, but these you know clean energy companies were very very tax efficient, and so we needed to sort of invent this financing structure that uh, let these these projects get financed and take advantage of these tax credits. And I think that sort of gave me a, a level of comfort of just sort of um, looking at financing structures from first principles and just saying, okay, well, how can we make this work um, rather than sort of taking the existing toolkit and, and just trying to, to square peg and round hole it. Um, yeah. And then, you know, so New Energy Finance was acquired by Bloomberg. I ran the energy economics group for Bloomberg for a couple of years. Um, and then I decided to uh, try my hand at, at software startups. Um, so from there, I, um, I, I sort of was never really, um, 
I didn't have a software background at all, um, but I felt like I understood the residential solar market really well. So I sort of had a business plan for a software company that was going to make it really, really easy for uh, folks to switch their homes to solar. So we built one of the first ever uh, tools that would let you uh, kind of use Google Maps and draw your roof um, on Google Maps and get a sort of instant quote at a time when you know, getting a, a quote for switching to solar was usually a process of someone showing up at your house and um, you know mailing in or faxing three months worth of utility bills and this sort of incredibly um, complicated process that we distilled down to something you could do yourself in a few minutes. Um, that startup ultimately uh, didn't work out. Um, you know, 2011, 2012 was a really, really bad time to be raising capital for a, a clean tech startup. It was right when a ton of VCs had lost enormous sums of money um, in clean tech manufacturing startups. Um, so it was a pretty challenging market. It gave me some some good exposure to the traditional early stage venture market. Um, and along the way, I, I learned to code, um, which was a, a really big upside of that process, even though the business itself failed. And um, can, from there, can we I, talk about that for one second? Just because you look at like Project Sunroof now by Google, and like, <laughs> essentially, that's what they're doing. You know, exactly what you're talking about is how yeah. is what Google has has caught up to. And uh, is mm -hmm. it somewhat vindicating like, hey, even though it didn't make you a biz millionaire, you know, that the concept was so good that now Google has copied it? Well, I don't know if I go that far, but I, you know, I think I think it taught me a really, really important lesson, which is that um, it's really not enough to just be right, right? In the sense that you know, I, I don't know. I think you know, I, I had an economics degree. I sort of bought into the efficient marketplace hypothesis and all this. That you know, essentially, it's a, a sort of meritocracy of ideas. When I was very young and naive, and that you know, the the really like most of the work was just about sort of being correct and that if you had the right ideas and you were smart and and hustled hard and you were right that you know you should be able to sort of put the other pieces in place you should be able to kind of get the capital that you need and you'll be able to hire the right people and that all those sort of points of friction should fall away if you really had the right idea and you were right about the market and uh, if you go back and look at you know our pitch deck from from 2010 um, I mean we were just dead accurate about absolutely everything, right? In terms of, you know, that the customer acquisition costs were going to become the dominant, you know, driver of costs in the market, switching over from the, the cost of the physical materials that came to pass, uh, that the way to solve this was going to be software, in particular, this kind of software, you know, it turns out that's what all of the major companies shifted to. Uh, companies that had sort of pivoted from real estate, you know, sort of customer acquisition into solar were sold for hundreds of millions of dollars, you know, a few years after we started. I mean, we were just dead right about everything in the business plan. And that was not nearly enough. And it turns out that, you know, building leverage, building access to capital, you know, building a track record, uh, you know, having access to the the people who will take a bet on you before you have all your pieces in place, that those can be, you know, equally important, if not more so than, you know, quote unquote, being sort of, you know, having the right idea, right? Um, it taught me that, you know, sort of that execution is everything. And you really have to pay a lot of attention to that, too. Well, I'm interested, you know, the all these years later, now with earnest capital, how do you apply that? Or how does that, you know, how does that stick with you on your current, current agenda 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's something that uh, you know that I that I specifically look for, which is you know, can you solve the sort of problems in front of you? I think you know my my uh, my perspective was I think shaded by the traditional thinking in maybe the sort of venture capital world, which is you know you just have a a sort of big audacious plan um, or a vision for a huge product in a huge market. And that allows you to just raise a ton of capital and you just throw that capital at the smartest people you can and you solve that huge problem. And that may work. I don't necessarily think that's a, that's a bad plan depending on you know, who you are and what problem you're tackling. Um, but it's really not the, the only game plan. And I think we definitely pay closer attention to um, entrepreneurs who have a, a real defined um, kind of winnable strategy and so that might mean that you actually want to start with a smaller, sort of less ambitious product, a less ambitious, um, and maybe ambitious is the wrong word, but just a, a more manageable um, uh, sort of product that has fewer moving parts, that has clear unit economics, and you use that to sort of build that leverage where, okay, now you know we have clear revenue, we're growing, we are sort of default alive, so we're not dependent on capital anymore. We've used that capital to build our sort of minimum viable team, so we have at least one salesperson, at least one engineer, at least one, you know, and we're and we're we're able to sort of take that and then kind of lever up onto the next phase and continue to sort of capture more and more of this overarching business plan rather than just working backwards from this sort of vision and just assuming kind of the you know the the major pieces will fall into place and that's that's how i've approached um you know building earnest capital myself you know so so paying very close attention to um kind of the you know how exactly you you sort of um are able to to sort of stair step up through the different sources of capital that are available to to funds so for example we've built our entire first fund exclusively off of angel investors who are themselves experienced entrepreneurs right because they are the ones who are just going to sort of fundamentally get what you're trying to do and are willing to bet on you before you have a track record and we did that on purpose right because we knew that if we were going and talking to to sort of much larger LPs that we'd be sort of beating our head against the wall, right? And that's kind of a, a lesson that I learned from from my own experience. And then in terms of you know how we back entrepreneurs, I think you know we're we're looking for folks that are a lot more focused on you know exactly how they're going to get through the next milestone and not just relying on being sort of correct about you know this product is better and that will sort of um, and the best product will will win in the marketplace, right? So. Well, and it's it's some pretty impressive names as far as advisors here. Um, but, you know, <laughs> so somebody like Jason Fried, how, how did you guys end up with him? Um, I mean, I think that across the board, there was just a ton of interest in in what we're trying to do. I, you know, I would say for the for the first time in my life, I, I really understand what what real true product market fit is in the sense of when you you put something out there and everyone that you meet just says, you know, how how can I help this exist? Like I want this to exist, I want this to succeed, and I want to know what I can do to to, to sort of pitch in. Um, that's the general response that we've gotten um, from from both founders and investors. Um, I think that. Uh, you know, there's been this sort of pent up problem, which is that, um, you know, 
basically all software businesses were faced with this choice of either bootstrap the business with no outside capital, which you know has some upsides, but certainly has quite a few downsides or challenges, um, or you should use this sort of you know fairly arcane financing product that sits way out on the furthest edge of sort of the risk return profile called venture capital. And those were your only two options. And there was just this sort of screaming demand for, for something somewhere in the middle. Um, and, and that was generally the sort of, you know, response that we got from everybody. Um, specifically, you know, the folks like, like Jason and David from Basecamp, um, like, you know, Troy Davis from Paper Trail, like Rich Thornett from uh, Dribble. All of these were founders who had bootstrapped their own business. And they really understood intuitively the, the kind of fundamental bet that we were making, which is that, um, you know, you can sort of build a, a portfolio of software companies in particular that are, you know, kind of singles, doubles, and triples, not just all strikeouts and home runs, which is the, the sort of dominant model right now in terms of how you can deploy capital into software businesses at an early stage is the venture model, which says you're going to find the sort of, you know, all these potential unicorns, almost all of them are going to fail. So the ones that succeed have to be, you know, billion dollar outcomes so that they basically make the return for the entire fund. And, and again, that, that is a sort of reasonable strategy that, that works sometimes. Um, but the idea that that's the only strategy is, is a bit crazy. Uh, and, you know, particularly entrepreneurs that uh, had bootstrapped a business sort of intuitively understood, yeah, I mean, you can build a business in a way that is a lot less risky. It may be less likely also to be a unicorn, but it's also a lot, lot, lot less likely to fail. And that if you sort of plug that into a spreadsheet, you can totally see how that would um, actually generate a, a really attractive portfolio of businesses. And, and that was the response that we got from a lot of bootstrapped entrepreneurs was, you know, they wanted to, to support these kinds of businesses. They themselves were actually, I think, pretty excited for the opportunity to provide mentorship because I feel very strongly that, um, you know, mentorship really often succeeds when you actually have some skin in the game. Um, and so if you're a pure bootstrapper, there's no, there's no vehicle to sort of have skin in the game because you're not raising capital. So you can't have experienced entrepreneurs who are invested in you. Um, you can, you can have mentors and that, that can totally happen outside of uh, there being any sort of investment relationship. But um, after talking to hundreds of people about it, found that uh, that seemed to be uh, a thread that really led to successful long-term mentorship relationships with some amount of, of skin in the game. And I don't know, just across the board, there was just a ton of, of interest um, in, in what we were trying to build. Well, I, I'm super attracted to it. And I want to help people understand more about the shared earnings agreement that you guys use. I mean, I, I think about us, like, you know, the fund I was running when we met, I had 1,200 investors, right? And, uh, mm -hmm. and when I tried this one, I wanted to do things different. And, uh, you know, this kind of, you know, we, we basically make master classes and shows at Milan, right? And mm -hmm. I decided to do it 100% bootstrapped because I didn't, you know, I didn't have anybody like you out there in between who I would have totally been interested in talking to. And, you know, lucky for us, we beat the odds and, and we were able to make it. Right. Um, and uh, mm -hmm. but that that idea of there being nothing in the middle is kind of crazy when you think about how many good businesses. I mean, if you if you have any kind of agreement with Warren Buffett about what a good business is. Right. Um, mm -hmm. There's so many that would not fit anything close to a profile for a venture investment that are 
you know, that are a very strong possibility for reliable, predictable income, but, uh, but of very little interest to, like you said, people investing on that extreme. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, fundamentally, you know, I think of this in a couple different ways. I mean, one of them is that, um, you know, you have growth investing and sort of value investing in, in public equities. And it's sort of just well established that, you know, you can, you can basically invest in these two strategies. And, you know, some people argue one is better than the other, but they're sort of generally assumed that you can, you can sort of deploy both strategies and they're both generally okay, decent ways to sort of use as a frame of reference for investing in companies once they're sort of public equities. Um, for whatever reason, when you're investing in kind of early stage companies, we've just to date decided that the only way to do it is with a growth mindset. So that's the only lens that we're going to look through is, is how much can this be worth to future investors and in subsequent rounds. Um, and I think there's a huge opportunity to really develop the entire universe of sort of value investing in early stage companies. And in part, um, the sort of cost to get companies started has fallen down so much that you often have a lot more clarity on businesses when, you know, 50000 $100,000, really goes a long way, you know, in, in a world where sort of 20 years ago, that might have been a very, very immature company that maybe just had a PowerPoint deck and had nothing going on. Like now, these businesses that are still, quote unquote, early stage in terms of how much capital they need, they're already pretty well-developed businesses. They have a product in the market. They have, you know, metrics around you know, revenue retention, around churn, around growth. And you can really already make pretty good evaluations of, of sort of, you know, what is the actual sort of value investing approach to these companies? And that's what we're trying to build. I mean, I think, you know, we've taken one approach, which is, you know, to sort of target a particular type of company, to use a particular type of financing structure. But I really think that there's a sort of blue ocean out there of, of opportunities for, for investing with this broad, just sort of value and investing um, lens. I mean, the way I describe it as, you know, some people have looked at what we're doing and said, oh, this is sort of alternative to VC. This is a niche alt VC, you know, genre of financing that, that's getting created. But I really don't see that at all. I see, you know, sort of venture capital as the niche product. And what we're doing right now is searching for a new sort of default mode of, of you know, backing entrepreneurs, um, particularly ones that are uh, building in the sort of, you know, really capital efficient, really scalable kind of, you know, internet and software and software enabled businesses. Um, I love it. Well, listen, um, I know we're about out of time for, for part one of the episode. Um, question I really liked asking guests is, uh, what's a piece of advice you would go back and give a younger version of yourself if you could? I think, uh, well, I, I mean, I think I would just sort of reiterate what I was talking earlier, which is basically just that, you know, the world is, is sadly not a, a meritocracy of ideas. And um, it's very, very important to sort of do the work and, and build the personal leverage before you're going to do something like trying to, to start a company. Um, I think uh, a lot of people, myself included, sort of start a company because uh, they you know, they basically just get tired of having a boss, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. Which is, you know, fine. I mean, but it, it's really not necessarily um, sufficient 
to to start a, a new company and, and build a new product. And it can be important to sort of spend the time to build the kind of um, leverage in terms of um, yeah, like an example would be if you if you want to get customers right out of the gate, one thing you can do is to spend you know a year or two beforehand sort of uh, blogging, writing, and consulting in the space, so that when you go and launch your product in that space, you have customers right out of the gate, rather than just designing in a vacuum on a whiteboard, um, you know, an amazing product for a, a particular market sector, and then putting it out there into the void and assuming that you know all the great ideas and great products will um, will sort of uh, percolate to the top, which, you know, frankly, is the, the, the general approach that I took um, when I was working on my first startup. And um, it's important to sort of build that, that leverage so that you can get sort of those accumulated unfair advantages before you, before you uh, get into the <laughs> maw of the competitive world. Okay, so I'm sure you don't remember this, but the best piece of advice I think I ever got from you was like, uh, right along these lines. It was like 10 years ago at the Bloomberg conference in London. And I think it was like me and you and Mark were just sitting out in the lobby or something. And I was looking at, could we buy life settlements as a way to finance a wind farm kind of idea? And, you know, mm -hmm. it's a crazy complicated thing, whatever. But uh, I asked you guys, hey, what do you think the best way is to learn about, to, to like deeply learn an industry the fastest? And you were like, you're like, I think the best way is to start a blog because if you have to go represent yourself as knowing something about it, you're going to put all this pressure on yourself to actually know something and interview the right people. And, you know, it's like, it was this concept of like, by putting yourself out there, you're going to hold yourself to a higher standard of knowledge. And that's, anyways, that's something that stuck with me for like 10 years. Hmm. Yeah. Okay. Uh, that's good advice. I probably should have taken that advice myself back then. <laughs> I love it. Okay, everybody, please uh, tune back into part two with Tyler. We're going to keep hearing about uh, shared earnings agreements and, uh, and ideas for people who are trying to grow something big. Thanks so much.